Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, my name's Eric, and I'll be reading you selections from today's e-edition of the Cape Cod Times. Today's date is Friday, October 6th of 2023. We'll start with the weather, as we always do. And across the Cape and Islands today, you can expect fog this morning. Otherwise, clouds and sun off and on throughout the day with a high of 71 expected. Tonight, 62 the expected low, cloudy and mild, shower in places later. Tomorrow, though, the rain comes in. It'll be breezy with rain, possible thunderstorms. High of 68, a low of 53. And on Sunday, mostly sunny and breezy. High of 63 and a low of 50. On Monday, mostly sunny and breezy, same thing. High of 63, low of 52. Tuesday, we may have a little bit of rain, a few showers, and then breezy in the afternoon. So, other than uh, today, maybe uh, uh, rather tomorrow, Saturday, uh, and Tuesday, pretty nice weather. Typical fall weather. Good to get outside, feel the sun on your face when it's out. The sunrise, speaking of which, was at 6.43 a.m. It will set at 6.15 p.m. We will have 11 hours and 32 minutes of daylight. The moonrise will be at 11.20 p.m. and set at 2.41 p.m. Now, moving to the front of the paper, where the lottery results and the news is kept. And we read the lottery results because somebody asked for them. If there's something that you would like read to the blind or those who are print disabled, you can email us at info at audiblelocalledger.org. Or call us at 508-539-2030, and we'll consider reading it. And if you miss any of the information that we share in our readings, you can always go to audiblelocalledger.org, and in the upper right corner is the Archived Readings tab. If you click on that, you'll find a week's worth of our newspaper readings that you can catch up on, as well as a wide variety of periodicals and literature that stay up there for your listening enjoyment. And all of that is free for the blind and the print disabled at audiblelocalledger.org, the archived readings tab. Now, for the latest results of the lottery, we go to MassLottery.com because the Cape Cod Times goes to press too early to give you the latest results, and you certainly deserve them if you ask for them. So for the numbers game of Thursday, October 5th of 2023, in the midday drawing, the numbers were... Five, five, two, seven. Again, yesterday's midday numbers game results, five, five, two, seven. In the evening drawing, the numbers were two, zero, three, eight. Last night's numbers game results in the evening drawing, two, zero, three, eight. For mass cash of Thursday, October 5th, last night, two, three, twelve, twenty-eight. And 35. For Lucky for Life, rounding out our lottery results for Thursday, October 5th, 15, 23, 30, 40, and 41, with 9, the bonus number. Good luck to all who play. Remember us if you win. Now, from the Cape Cod Times front page, again, today is October 6th, a Friday. Busier ever every week, reads the headline. East Ham Cannabis Store, part of $5 billion in sales statewide by Denise Coffey. A recent report from the Cannabis Control Commission that sales of recreational marijuana in Massachusetts have surpassed $5 billion is no surprise to David O'Brien. He is president and CEO of the Massachusetts Cannabis Business Association. It's no longer an experiment, O'Brien said in a phone interview September 26th. You've got over 500 companies either open or opening in Massachusetts. That's $5 billion in cumulative sales, $1.4 to $1.5 billion in sales annually, employing over 20,000 people at over 300 retail shops around the state. People are making a go of it. And what's more amazing, he said, was 20% of that gross is paid out in taxes. Between sales of six and a quarter and excise tax of 10.75%, taxes and the host community agreement fees, which are 3%, that amounts to a billion dollars for the Commonwealth. 
Municipalities are collecting about $150 million of that total in the host community agreement fees. Some believe those numbers could be higher. The data on the Commissioner's website are self-reported by licensees, and the Commission admits to the possibility of inaccuracies in sales and other metrics. But what is clear is the industry's booming, at least for many dispensary owners and operators. O'Brien said the months of June, July, and August enjoyed the best sales to date since 2018, when marijuana sales were made legal. According to the Commission, sales for June, July, and August, respectively, were $134 million, $137.1 million, and $139.9 million. And stores are still opening, O'Brien said. I think some communities are reconsidering whether to allow cannabis. Salty Farmers is one of 15 cannabis dispensaries on the Cape and Islands. Sales have followed state trends, according to General Manager Jeff Risk. The East Ham retail store has been open for two years. Pretty much every week is busier than the week before, Risk said. The dispensary is in the process of opening their own grow business just a few hundred yards from the dispensary. The 2,000-square-foot facility will provide cannabis that will sell alongside a curated mix of products that include flowers, edibles, vapes, and concentrates. There's a lot of good weed out there by people we prefer to buy it from, Risk said. We focus a lot on the growing process. Massachusetts comes in fourth among the states that allow cannabis sales with $146,154,739 in average monthly sales, according to the cannabis data and market research company BDSA. Total sales through 2023 are projected to reach 1,753,856,870. And that number is projected to rise to $43 billion for the country by 2027. The adult use market will represent about $35 billion of that, according to BDSA. The growth in the number of dispensaries has been accompanied by a drop in the price of marijuana. The average retail cost of flour per gram has gone from $14.68 in January of 2020 to $6.06 in August of 2023, according to the Commission. O'Brien attributes it to the supply flooding the market. There's over 3.5 million square feet of canopy licensed in Massachusetts, which is a lot of grow potential and supply, he said. At some point, if there's so much supply, the wholesale price falls. O'Brien said he's waiting to see what happens with the commission after Chairwoman Shannon O'Brien, who's no relation to him, was suspended September 14th. O'Brien has asked a judge to reinstate her. The commission is in the middle of a regulatory review process and has a November 9th deadline to announce proposed changes to regulations that include oversight of host community agreements and their community impact fees. O'Brien, with the Marijuana Business Association, has been advocating changes in the 3% fee for years. He's also looking forward to the Commission's implementation of a social consumption license. The license will allow people to consume cannabis on the premises or have an event license. They're still working on the details of what that would look like. I just wish the agency would settle down. Sad headline on the cover of today's Cape Cod Times of October 6th. Town Employee Dies After Falmouth Crash by Rachel Devaney. A Falmouth Department of Public Works worker succumbed to fatal injuries Wednesday in Falmouth after a town-owned truck that worker was driving ran into a tree. The Falmouth Police Department and Falmouth Fire Department responded at 2.24 p.m. to a single-vehicle car crash at 275 Davis Hill Road, said Deputy Fire Chief Scott Thrasher. A private citizen witnessed the incident and called emergency services at 2.20 p.m. When the call came in, we dispatched a district engine and an ambulance crew, said Thrasher in a phone interview. Emergency services cleared the scene by 2.49 p.m., and the investigation was turned over to the Falmouth Police Department crash reconstruction team, according to Thrasher. The driver was operating a Public Works Department pickup truck, according to a Falmouth Police press release. The driver of the truck was transported to Falmouth Hospital with life-threatening injuries and died at an undisclosed time, Thrasher said. The fire department did not release the name of the driver. The crash could have been the result of a health emergency, Lieutenant Michael Simino of the Falmouth Police Department said. The crash is still under investigation, said Simino by phone. A health complication could be a contributing factor, but we aren't sure right now.
The driver was an employee at the Falmouth Department of Public Works, said Simoneau. We're also trying to have respect for the DPW. They're going through a lot this morning, he said. The name of the driver will be released, but at a later date, said Simoneau. Keeping it local. Holiday weekend forecast for Cape Cod. One day may be soggy. I think you already heard this in our weather review, but this is a little bit more interesting, uh, a little bit more in-depth information about the weather. A weather rumble between a strong cold front and moisture associated with tropical storm Philippe may bring soggy and breezy conditions to Cape Cod for part of the Columbus Day weekend. Spotty showers are expected on Friday evening, ushering in a fairly lengthy period of potential rainfall around the Cape, according to Bill Leatham meteorologist at the National Weather Service Boston Norton office. The rain's expected to pick up in intensity early on Saturday and then continue throughout the day. It's looking like the outer Cape might get up to an inch of rainfall, said Leatham, with lesser amounts in more westerly areas of Cape Cod. But Leatham added that rainfall totals were still somewhat in question and dependent on how the interaction between the coal front and moisture associated with Philippe plays out. On the bright side, the center of Tropical Storm Philippe seems likely to pass to the east of Cape Cod as it transitions to post-tropical status, according to the National Hurricane Center. Blustery winds may also be part of the weekend weather package for Cape Cod, particularly Saturday night into Sunday, according to the National Weather Service. Wind gusts of 30 miles per hour are possible on Saturday night, with 37-mile-per-hour gusts possible Sunday. But sunny conditions are expected on Sunday and Monday with cooler than normal temperatures. So Friday, we'll go through the forecast again. Mostly cloudy, high near 69, wind 8 to 10 miles an hour. Friday night, a chance of showers after midnight. Mostly cloudy, east wind around 10 miles an hour. New precipitation amounts less than a tenth of an inch. On Saturday, though, showers. High near 64, east wind about 15 miles an hour. Chance of precipitation 90%. Saturday night, showers, possibly a thunderstorm before 11, then a chance of showers, low around 52, breezy with wind becoming 20 miles an hour westerly after midnight. Winds could gust as high as 30 miles an hour. Precipitation chance is 80%. 20-mile-an-hour winds on Sunday, otherwise sunny. Same thing on Columbus Day. So there's your holiday weekend forecast. From the Cape and Islands section, Hyannis Harbor fuel leak is under investigation by Walker Armstrong. A fuel leak was reported Thursday morning near Dockside Marina at the end of School Street in Hyannis, according to authorities. Officials from the Hyannis Fire Department, Woods Hole, Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket Steamship Authority, and the U.S. Coast Guard responded to the fuel leak, which blanketed the surface of the water at the marina with a technicolor sheen of oil. The cause of the leak remained under investigation. At the marina, wind was blowing from the south, and there was a strong odor of fuel in the air. There was very little boat activity at the site. Some ferry traffic could be seen in the distance. No agency was able Thursday morning to comment to the Times. An official from the State Department of Environmental Protection was expected to arrive on scene, according to comments made at the site. Orleans wants over a million dollars to hire firefighters by Zane Razak in Orleans. Voters at the October 16th special town meeting will be asked to decide whether to fund eight new full-time firefighters. There are 33 articles to be settled, including a proposal to hire a part-time sustainability and energy manager and funding awareness and education to honor indigenous people. Orleans Fire Chief George E. Deering IV on Tuesday called Article 3 to fund the new firefighters critical to the department's ability to respond to emergencies. With our current staffing level, we can't sustain the number of calls we get, particularly simultaneous calls, said Deering. We need more members on duty. The town currently has five firefighters per shift. An additional eight firefighters would mean seven firefighters per shift, allowing for two ambulances or an ambulance and fire engine on the road simultaneously. As of Tuesday, Deering said two firefighters are out for training, another two are out on long-term injury leave. The base salary would be just under $62,000. Deering predicted challenges to hire due to a national shortage of paramedics and firefighters, only magnified on Cape Cod by the housing shortage and competition from other towns. But what we're doing now isn't working, said Deering. Funding the new positions requires a simple majority vote, 
and also passing an operational override of $925,000 during the November 7th town election to pay for salaries and fringe benefits and transferring $231,000 from free cash for equipment and training. Both the Select Board and Finance Committee unanimously recommend passing the article. Orleans applied for funding through the Federal Staffing for Adequate Fire and Emergencies Response Grant, which would pay for salaries and benefits for up to three years. While the town hasn't officially heard back yet, Deering believes it hasn't won the grant at this time because all the awards appear to be allocated on the website. Passing Article 3 would improve quality of life for both residents and firefighters, according to Deering. More firefighters will result in improved response to emergencies, he said, and firefighters will be less overburdened. Our staff is going out to calls, knowing they're understaffed, and that puts them in a tough spot in delivering the level of care they want to, said Deering. We're going back to the same well and running these people down hard. A town meeting is both an event and an entity, according to the Secretary of the Commonwealth's website. As an event, it's a gathering of a town's eligible voters and is referred to as the town meeting. As an entity, it is the legislative body for towns in Massachusetts and is referred to simply as town meeting. Thirteen of the 15 Cape Cod towns have open town meetings. That means all voters who live in that town may vote on all matters. Falmouth has a representative town meeting, where all voters elect town meeting members who then vote on all town meeting matters. The town of Barnstable is governed by an elected town council rather than by a town meeting. The special town meeting will be held at 6 p.m. Monday, October 16th at Nauset Middle School's Gymnasium. The town meeting will be streamed live on Channel 8 on the website. The town meeting warrant is available on the town website. It was made available in hard copy at the Orleans town clerk's office in town hall on september 21st the next local story it's regional really massachusetts house approves pay disclosure bill for hiring ads by colin young and michael p norton of the state house news service in boston the massachusetts legislature unanimously passed a law in 2016 to address the yawning gap between the wages paid to men and women doing the same work, a law that Representative Christine Barber on Wednesday called one of the strongest pay equity laws in the country. But as she made the case on the House floor Wednesday for new legislation requiring businesses with at least 25 employees to include a projected pay range in any hiring advertisement for a specific position, Barber said the wage gap has actually gotten worse in Massachusetts since 2016. The wage gap still persists. Women earn just 81 cents on the dollar compared to men, and that gap has actually increased since the data was first collected in 2016. Moreover, Native American women earn 59 cents for every dollar. Black women earn 57 cents, and Latinas earn just 51 cents, the Somerville Democrat said. These data points are not only startling, but they're unacceptable, so today we're responding. The bill before us is a critical step to achieve true pay equity. Under the bill, which moves to the Senate after a 148-8 to vote in the House Wednesday, any public or private employer with 25 or more employees posting a job would need to list the annual salary or hourly wages they reasonably and in good faith expect to pay. It also outlines new data collection steps designed to monitor for gender and racial wage gaps within individual business sectors. Research shows that pay range transparency in the hiring process is one of the best tools to help close historic gender and racial wage gaps because women and people of color are more likely to underestimate their earning power. The legislation also protects an employee's right to ask for pay ranges in the workplace, including when they're offered a promotion or a job transfer. These measures ensure that employees are armed with the knowledge to make informed decisions, Representative Josh Cutler of Duxbury, the bill's lead sponsor, said. But it's not just all about employees and job seekers. These measures will also help employers to build trust, to promote fairness, and attract and retain top talent. The bill is a top priority of the Massachusetts Caucus of Women Legislators and advanced to the House floor relatively quick upon being redrafted and reported out of the Joint Committee on Labor and Workforce Development last week.
The Women's Caucus selected this bill as just one of five legislative priorities, fitting under our strategic priority to elevate women's economic opportunity and to eliminate barriers. Representing 31% of the legislature, our 62-member bipartisan and bicameral caucus selected this bill as a priority, given our history in supporting pay equity legislation and because this bill represents the next step toward true pay equity. Representative Hannah Kane, a Shrewsbury Republican who serves as House Chair of the Caucus of Women Legislators, said, No representative spoke against the bill before the House's vote. The eight no votes were cast by Republican representatives Stephen Zarhos of Barnstable, Donald Bertiam of Spencer, Nicholas Boldiga of Southwick, David DeCoste of Norwell, Mark Lombardo of Bilrica, Kelly Pease of Westfield, Michael Soder of Bellingham, and Allison Sullivan Almeida of Abington. All Republicans. Senators Patricia Jalen and Paul Feeney are among the bill's supporters in the Senate. Keeping it regional, two suspects sought in deadly Massachusetts shooting by Steve LeBlanc of the Associated Press in Boston. Two men will face murder charges after a pregnant woman hit by gunfire on a bus in Holyoke, Massachusetts, delivered a baby that later died, authorities said Thursday. Alejandro Ramos, 22, of Holyoke, was arraigned in Holyoke District Court Thursday for his alleged involvement in Wednesday's shooting, investigators said. He'll be charged with murder, and other charges are expected to follow. An official at the Hamden District Attorney's Office said it was unclear if Ramos had been appointed an attorney yet. Court officials said information about the arraignment was impounded. A spokesman from the DA's office said a not-guilty plea would have been automatically entered for Ramos. A second suspect, John Luis Sanchez, 30 years old of Holyoke, remains hospitalized. Sanchez will be formally arraigned on a charge of murder when his condition allows, with additional charges also expected to follow. A man who answered the phone at a number associated with a possible relative of Sanchez told the Associated Press on Thursday, All that is misinformation. I'll have my attorney reach out to you. Police responded to the shooting Wednesday at 12.38 p.m. and said it appeared three male suspects were involved in an altercation before gunshots were fired. State police sent patrols, canine teams, and investigative units to help Holyoke police with the investigation, including the search for suspects in the area. The pregnant woman, who hasn't yet been identified, was shot while seated on a public bus passing through the area and was taken to a hospital in critical condition, investigators said. The infant who was delivered and needed life-saving medical services tragically passed away, they added. Jose Almonte, manager of the Almonte Market 2, said the chaotic scene erupted right outside his store. A man who'd bought juice in the store was jumped by two other men when he stepped outside, and then gunfire erupted, Almonte said. They went for him and gunfire started, he said. He said he didn't see who produced the gun, but that there was a struggle as shots rang out and others sought cover. He said that there were more than a dozen shots fired. One man was shot in the leg and dragged into the store, while another man who was shot in the hand ran off, Almonte said. The man who was jumped by the other two assailants fled on an electric bike with the handgun, he said. Pioneer Valley Transit Authority spokesperson Brandy Pelletier confirmed that one of the agency's buses was on its route when it was involved in the shooting, but said there was no further comment on the active investigation. The Massachusetts State Police Unit, Detective Unit, assigned to the Hamden District Attorney's Office and the Holyoke Police Department, are investigating. Moving into the local sports scene, as we keep it local, Fearless Born Off to Best Start in Over a Decade by Courtney Jacobs. When it comes to sports, athletes can make a difference in ways that don't always show up in the box score. For the Bourne High School girls soccer team, that player is sophomore goalkeeper Olivia Meda. In a 4-0 win over Joseph Case High School on Wednesday, it wasn't just her stopping shots on goals for her fourth clean sheet of the season. From the start of the game to the end, Meda, that's M-E-D-A, talked to her teammates. This went as far as Meda asking questions mid-game. She wanted to know what position they were playing on the field and then told them the right spot to go to. Mita could be heard a mile away yelling to her teammates, Let's talk! Come on! Defense! We need to shift! We need to start winning these balls! It wasn't always just yelling out directions to tell players what to do. 
Every time a player scored, she told them, good job. She also encouraged players when they made good plays. Born head coach Sean Sullivan called Mita the quarterback of the Canalmen. She's the most fearless person I've ever met in my life, Sullivan said. She's unbelievable. She means so much to this team, and our team recognizes it, too. They know she's yelling, and they know they don't want to upset her, but she keeps us in a lot of these games. For Mita, communication's a key part on how well they do this season. As a goalie, I can see the whole entire field better than anybody else. I think they appreciate knowing what needs to be done and what needs to be different. One player that appreciates Mita is freshman striker Sienna Silvia, who scored two goals in the win over Case. It helps me be aware of my surroundings and what I need to do better, Silvia said, even when she says, come to the ball or go to the ball or check for the ball. It helps us turn on. Coach Sullivan is at the helm for the first time and has the Canalmen sitting at 6-4-1 and one after the win over Case. This is the best start to a season since 2008. Born girls volleyball goes to 11-0 and with a five-set win by Andre Sims. The Born girls volleyball team stayed undefeated after beating Case in five sets. In the fifth set, Bourne found itself down 11-7 but managed to turn it around to secure the victory and improve to 11-0. Nola Timo had a career-high 22 kills and also added 18 digs and five aces. Elena Timo and Sofia Helunen combined for 40 assists and also chipped in nine digs. Lily Russell had 31 digs to lead the defensive effort, and Mela Muldoon finished the night with nine kills and had 18 digs. In other high school action in girls' volleyball, it was Nantucket 3, Falmouth 1, Barnstable 3, Dennis Yarmouth 0, Nauset 3, Rising Tide 0, Cape Tech 3, Old Colony 0, Sturgis West 3, Monomoy 0. In boys' soccer, it was Case 2, Born 0. In girls' soccer, it was St. John Paul II 5, Falmouth Academy 1. It was born 4, case 0. And in boys golf, St. John Paul II uh, beat Falmouth 179 to 141. Cohasset 95, Mashpee 64. Upper Cape 8.5, Bristol Plymouth half. Monomoy 239, Sturgis East 301. Born 8.5, Westport a half. In field hockey, Monomoy 2, Nantucket 1, Cohasset 9, Mashpee 0, Barnstable 8, Nauset 0, Falmouth 4, Dennis Yarmouth 0. And there's your local sports for you, something we don't always do, but it is local and uh, we are in full swing with high school sports these days. And... If we're going to keep it local at this point, we have to move into the entertainment section, which is in the uh, paper today, something they don't always put in, lifestyle and arts. Ringling returns. The self-proclaimed greatest show on earth is back, only without the snarling and trumpeting beasts that made the 152-year-old American circus famous, which raises a few existential cultural questions. Is a circus a circus without the indelible spectacle of a lion leaping through fire or an elephant pirouetting on a ball? And is the circus a circus when, technically, it's no longer even called a circus? Juliet Feld Grossman, daughter of longtime Ringling Brothers, Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey owner Kenneth Feld, is banking on the answer coming in the form of an elated crowd's roar despite a six-year hiatus. We didn't know what Ringling Brothers would become, but we just knew it had to endure, says Feld, who serves as chief operating officer of Florida-based Feld Entertainment. The question was just, how? Ringling Brothers is returning to the national landscape. The first show in its two-year run were last Friday in Bossier City, Louisiana, with a revamped circus that replaces its controversy-generating menagerie of performing animals with 75 talented humans from 18 countries. So families will no longer gasp when a man puts his head into a lion's mouth or cheer as an elephant dunks a basketball. 
Instead, they'll be asked to react to a family of Mexican tightrope walkers who are pushing the limits of their craft. Applaud a circus-obsessed kid who keeps breaking his own record for riding the tallest unicycle. And cheer on teen Skylar Miser, a human rocket newbie whose parents, Tina and Brian, also were wrangling human rockets. We have completed all of the local news, and it comes right as we get to the uh, midway point of our reading. And regular listeners are aware, I'm sure, it's at this stage that we move to the obituaries that are listed in the paper. And in today's Cape Cod Times of October 6th of 2023, we have three obituaries. The first obituary in the Cape Cod Times for Friday, October 6th, is of Todd John Germani of Barnstable, who at the age of 62 passed on September 27th, a father, brother, uncle, and grandfather. Todd was born April 21st, 1961 in Attleboro, and later moved to the Cape where he spent the majority of his life. He's a skilled craftsman and a jack-of-all-trades, performing carpentry, plumbing, and electrical work, plastering, tiling, and painting. He was an engaging person and possessed a sharp sense of humor. He'll be buried at St. Mary's Cemetery in North Attleboro at a later date. The next obituary is of James E. Creighton of South Yarmouth, who at the age of 58 passed on October 3rd. He was born June 23, 1965, in Alabama. He worked as a sous chef at the Red Jacket Resort in West Yarmouth, as well as the Oysters Harbors Club in Osterville for many years. Currently, he worked as a case manager at Cape Abilities. He was a funny, hard-working, generous, loving, family-oriented man and a loyal friend to many. He enjoyed spending time with his family and friends watching football. Relatives and friends are invited to a memorial visiting to Memorial Visiting Hours Sunday, October 8th, that's this Sunday, from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. at the Hallett Funeral Home, 273 Station Ave in South Yarmouth. The final obituaries of Richard Talmadge, who at 69 passed on October 1st. He was a Cape Cod photographer. Richard's talent was a mastery of portrait photography, providing his clients with lasting memories. The burial will be private. And that concludes the obituaries listed in the Cape Cod Times for October 6th. We have completed the local news. We'll move into the national news. U.S. aid to Ukraine hangs in limbo by Mary Claire Jelonik and Kevin Freaking of the Associated Press in Washington. A path for additional aid to Ukraine from the U.S. appears increasingly fraught after the ouster of House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, with many House Republicans opposing help for the war-torn country as they search for a new leader. Tuesday's historic vote to remove McCarthy as Speaker comes at a critical time, with a deadline for funding the government little more than a month away, and as opposition for aiding Ukraine's defensive war against Russia slowly gains momentum among Republicans in both chambers of Congress. Leaders dropped $6 billion in Ukraine aid from the temporary funding measure that was passed Saturday as they focused on passing it quickly just hours before the government would have shut down. Congress will have to figure out by mid-November how to pass another spending bill to keep the government open. Supporters of Ukraine aid, including Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who visited the capital to plead for the money in person just two weeks ago, say it's essential additional funding is included. But the House is leaderless for now, halting legislation, and it's unclear when the next Speaker will be elected. Because the eight Republican lawmakers who voted to oust McCarthy were upset with his decision to work with Democrats on funding the government, his successor will likely fight the Senate and House Democrats on many issues, including funding for Ukraine. It does worry me, President Joe Biden said Wednesday. He said he would address Ukraine aid soon. We cannot and should not again be faced with an 11th-hour decision of brinksmanship that threatens to shut down the government, Biden said. In the Senate, where bipartisan support for Ukraine is stronger, Democrats and Republicans also expressed alarm. The fight in Ukraine is a century-defining moment, said Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut. 
The rest of this century looks radically different if the U.S. abandons Ukraine. If the decision in the House is to elect a speaker who will fight against Ukraine funding, that's a decision that will be written about in the history books. Senator Joe Manchin, a Democrat from West Virginia, said he hopes House Republicans come to their senses. If the U.S. can't help a country that's willing to sacrifice its own people to fight Russia, Manchin said, then God help us all. Senate Republicans who support Ukraine aid have increasingly said it should be tied to increased money or policy changes to help manage the southern U.S. border. They see the pairing as a possible compromise that could politically benefit members of both parties. But any deal-making is on hold as House Republicans try to find a new leader. Because of the chaos in the House today, it makes it harder to talk about the failed Biden presidency and address our broken southern border. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican from South Carolina, posted on X, which is formerly known as Twitter. So far, House Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan, representative from Ohio, Republican from Ohio, and House Majority Leader Steve Scalise have both announced they'll run for speaker. Oklahoma Representative Kevin, Kevin Hearn is also weighing a bid. Jordan has made clear his opposition to additional Ukraine aid and reiterated it Wednesday. The most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. It's the border situation and crime on the streets. Everybody knows that, Jordan told reporters. Before the Ukraine money was dropped from the temporary funding bill, the House last week approved $300 million for a program that provides Ukrainian troops with training on the use of American-made weapons systems. That vote was set up to allow some Republicans to register their opposition. More than half of the Republican conference, 117 of 221, voted against the measure, including Jordan and Hearn. Scalise voted for it. Hearn said Wednesday that Biden needs to sit down in a classified setting and tell those of us that have not supported, for the same reason time and time again, we want to know what the American taxpayer dollars are going for and what's the end game. Representative Kelly Armstrong, Republican from North Dakota, voted for the $300 million in training funding but said the Biden administration needs to do a better job of making the case. People have had enough over here. They want to hear a plan. They want to hear a message. They want to understand what we're doing. And there's a case to be made. So go make the case, Armstrong said. Some Democrats weren't sure if the situation was better or worse in McCarthy's absence, noting that McCarthy was the one who dropped the Ukraine aid from the government funding bill. Let me put it this way. We're no worse off, said Representative Adam Smith of Washington State, who's the top-ranking Democrat on the House Armed Services Committee. But House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall, Republican from Texas, who backs the assistance, said he knew that McCarthy was committed to funding Ukraine's war because of private conversations with him. Amid the chaos, he said he fears the government will shut down in November and that spending decisions will be punted until the end of the year in one massive funding package. McCall said support for Ukraine would be a major factor in whom he supports for Speaker. It's going to be even harder now with McCarthy gone, McCall said. We're running out of time. A report says to use parking lots and rooftops for solar arrays by Chris Lisinski. More than half of the land covered by parking lots in Massachusetts could host solar panel canopies. And almost four times that much rooftop space is also viable, according to a new report that urges policymakers to balance solar expansion with conservation. Research from Mass Audubon and Harvard Forest found that construction of ground-mounted solar arrays has wiped away thousands of acres of forests in the past decade plus, in the process reducing wildlife habitats and preventing more greenhouse gas emissions from being naturally captured and sequestered. This group concluded that by deploying incentives and a more deliberate focus, policymakers can protect natural and agricultural lands while still achieving most of the projected growth in solar energy. We can do both. We can have the solar and we can protect the nature. It's not a zero-sum equation, said Michelle Mannion, Mass Audubon's vice president for policy and advocacy and an author of the report. When you actually include the loss and the cost of the losses to nature and to working lands, it's not very clear that it's cheaper to do the large ground-mount systems on those lands. 
So we really need to do full cost accounting when we think about the true costs of how we build out this incredible resource. The report seeks to resolve a common tension of the clean energy expansion, how to balance the need for new infrastructure with the impact that it will have on communities and ecosystems by encouraging an approach that takes both needs into account. Since 2010, more than 5,000 acres of natural natural and working land have been converted into ground-mounted solar arrays, according to the report. Authors estimated there are 119,000 acres of rooftops in Massachusetts that are viable to host solar panels, and about 35,000 of the 55,000 acres covered by parking lots could host solar panel canopies above the surface, they said. Jonathan Thompson, a senior ecologist with Harvard Forest, who also led the study, said the state has 20.6 gigawatts of solar rooftop potential and a bit less than 10 gigawatts of parking lot canopy solar potential. Parking lot canopies tend to be more expensive than other solar power options, so authors said the state will need to invest resources to incentivize that shift, such as through reducing labor and permitting costs. Authors warned that although solar power is vital to the state's clean energy and climate goals, clearing too much land for new installations does damage not just to wildlife but to the overarching effort itself. Natural ecosystems and soil on farms absorb about 10% of the state's greenhouse gas emissions each year, according to the report. Under the current siting scenarios, we would cut down 5.8 million metric tons of CO2 from forest land. That's a hard number to absorb, Thompson said. It's the equivalent to the energy use from 730,000 homes in Massachusetts. We would also lose about 21,000 acres of our high biodiversity lands, and we lose over 8,000 acres of prime farmland soil. By trimming that side of the net zero ledger, author said, the state would create even more work for itself to accomplish on the emissions reduction front. If we lose those forests, and we don't have that free carbon removal, we're going to have to make it up on the back end somehow in that 2030 to 2050 time frame, probably through additional greenhouse gas emission reductions, Mannion said. Lawmakers in the Healy administration are attempting to shift Massachusetts to clean energy sources to comply with the net zero by 2050 state law, which also lays out interim targets along the way. For years, officials projected that offshore wind would be a pillar of the sweeping campaign, but Massachusetts and other states have run into difficulty building momentum behind the nascent industry amid price increases. Mannion suggested the uncertainty in the offshore wind sector could make solar power an even more important cog in the clean energy machine. Solar is more competitive, with what looks to be more expensive offshore wind in our near future, she said. Mannion later added, we need, we know, we need another at least 5 gigawatts of solar by 2030, probably even more, given the challenges for offshore wind at the moment. In what can only be seen as a very odd reversal, the headline reads, Laws Waived for Border Wall Construction. Decision contrasts with Biden's previously stated opposition to a barrier by Joey Garrison and John Moritz of USA Today in Washington. The Biden administration is extending a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, despite President Joe Biden's promise as a candidate not to add to a controversial border wall that's long been a signature of his predecessor, Donald Trump. Amid surging migration, the Biden administration is bypassing 26 federal laws, including environmental restrictions, to build a new section of the border wall in South Texas near the Rio Grande, according to a notice made public Thursday. Citing high illegal entry into the U.S., Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas defended using his authority to waive certain laws to expedite the wall's construction. There is presently an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers and roads in the vicinity of the border of the United States in order to prevent unlawful entries into the U.S., Mayorkas wrote in the notice. The additional barriers, as well as new roads in Starr County, Texas, in the Rio Grande Valley, will be paid for by funding approved by Congress in 2019 during the Trump presidency. 
As a 2020 presidential candidate, Biden vowed not to build another foot of a border wall that Trump has for years made the focus of his efforts to stop illegal immigration. Biden said Thursday he had no choice because Congress didn't agree to cancel the funding that was approved in a 2019 law before he became president. The money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money, Biden told reporters, and they didn't. They wouldn't. In the meantime, there's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what it was appropriated for, and I can't stop that. Asked whether he believes a border wall is effective, Biden responded, no, contradicting the statement from Mayorkas justifying the project. In June, U.S. Customs and Border Protection announced the construction of a 20-mile barrier with Steve Bollard panels. The funding will come from $190 million remaining from a pool of $1.38 billion Congress approved in 2019 for fencing in the Rio Grande Valley. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said DHS was required to use the border funding. We have to comply by law to get this done, she said. The move comes amid a surge of migrant crossings along the Texas border with Mexico, and as the U.S. Justice Department is battling Republican Governor Greg Abbott over some of his initiatives aimed at deterring illegal immigration. Democratic activist and South Texas attorney Ricardo de Anda, who battled the Trump administration's efforts to take private land for his signature border wall project, called the move by Biden's White House a slap in the face. Trump slammed Biden on his social media platform, Truth Social, over the reversal. Will Joe Biden apologize to me in America for taking so long to get moving and allowing our country to be flooded with 15 million illegal immigrants, Trump wrote? Abbott, whose office had no immediate comment on Mayorkas' announcement, has been the nation's harshest critic of the Democratic administration's approach to matters of unlawful immigration and border security. The Texas legislature has allocated nearly $10 billion since Biden took office for Abbott's Operation Lone Star that has sent thousands of National Guard soldiers and troopers from the Texas Department of Public Safety to South Texas. Texas has also laid miles of razor wire and has built barriers on private land with permission from owners as part of the operation. The announcement prompted political debate by the Democratic administration facing an increase of migrants entering through the southern border in recent months, including thousands who entered the U.S. through Eagle Pass at the end of September. A border wall is a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem, U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar said in a statement. It will not bolster border security in Stark County. I continue to stand against the wasteful spending of taxpayer dollars on an ineffective border wall. Political proponents of the border wall said the waivers should be used as a launching pad for a shift in policy. After years of denying that a border wall and other physical barriers are effective, the DHS announcement represents a sea change in the administration's thinking. A secure wall is an effective tool for maintaining control of our borders. Dan Stein, president of the Federation for American Immigration Reform, said in a statement. International news, terrible news. Russian attack on village in Ukraine kills 51 people. Ukraine's president urges strong Western support. By Susie Bland in Kiev. A Russian rocket struck a village cafe and store in eastern Ukraine on Thursday, killing at least 51 civilians in one of the deadliest attacks in the war in months, according to President Volodymyr Zelensky and other top officials in Kiev. Zelensky attending a summit of about 50 European leaders in Spain to drum up support from Ukraine's allies denounced the strike in the village of Rosa as demonstrably brutal Russian crime and a completely deliberate act of terrorism. About 60 people were in the cafe attending a wake after a funeral, said Internal Affairs Minister Ihor Klemenko, who provided the death toll. Among the dead was a six-year-old boy. Seven other people were wounded, said Presidential Chief of Staff Andrei Yermak and Kharkiv Governor Ole Sinyabhubov. According to preliminary information from Kiev, the village was hit by an Iskander missile. 
Emergency crews searched the smoldering rubble of buildings. Ukrainian prosecutors released photos showing bloodied bodies. Rosa, which had a population of about 500 before the war, is located in the northeastern Kharkiv region. The village and other parts of the region were seized by Russia early in the war and then recaptured by Ukraine in September of 22. The village is only 19 miles west of Kupiansk, a key focus of the Russian military effort. Zelensky had visited the area Tuesday to meet with troops and inspect equipment supplied by the West. And we'll round out our reading today with some information that might be helpful for people who travel. Processing Time for Passports, Now Dropping, by Michael Salerno. Good news, future international travelers. The wait time to get your passports dropped. The U.S. Department of State updated its passport processing times on Monday. Now, passport applicants can expect to wait 8 to 11 weeks for standard service and 5 to 7 weeks for expedited service, which costs $60 extra. Wait times fluctuate based on demand, but this summer, passport applicants faced long waits as the State Department managed high application volumes. For the last six months, processing times were 10 to 13 weeks for standard service and 7 to 9 weeks for expedited service. Here's what to know about the newly announced changes and applying for a passport. Why are the times decreasing? In a statement, the State Department said it's improving the way it processes passport applications and it's hiring more people to handle the applications. Staff worked countless hours as applications flooded the department this spring and summer, and the department increased its staff by 10% to handle the unprecedented demand. More than 24 million passport books and cards were issued from October 2022 to September of 2023, a record number. The State Department also mentioned it's investing in supporting and modernizing our technology to improve customer service and processing, but didn't specify how that would happen. I applied during the summer. Will I get my passport sooner? No. The State Department said the new processing times only reflect on passport applications received on or after Monday. Passport applications submitted this summer are still subject to the longer processing times. What do I need to get a passport? Passport appointments last about 15 minutes. People must bring a government-issued ID like a driver's license, their old passport if renewing, passport photos, a filled-out copy of the passport application form DS-11, which is available online via a form filler tool and as a PDF that can be printed and filled out, and then a check for the application fee. So, how much do passports cost? Standard service for passport books costs $130, plus a $35 acceptance fee, according to the State Department. Passport cards, which are valid for land and sea crossing but not for air travel to Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, and Bermuda, cost $30, plus a $35 acceptance fee. Application and acceptance fees must be paid separately. The application fee can only be paid by check, made payable to U.S. Department of State, and the expedited service, as noted, costs $60 more than regular passport service. And with that, we've come to the end of our reading of the Cape Cod Times for today, Friday, October 6th of 2023. This is your reader, Eric, saying be well, be safe, look after each other, remember our vets. Bye for now.